To make change, to be powerful, you don't just need organised people, but you need some organised money. But how do you get that organised money? Sydney Tarot, one of the world's leading writers on social movements, once argued that strong social movements combine money, skills and people. He called it resource mobilisation. Today on this first Changemaker panel, we have brought together two people who think and act every day to make money work for social change. They are in Sydney, having travelled from the US and UK respectively, to attend a magnificent gathering of city organisers, sponsored by the Sydney Policy Lab. First, we have Colleen Looper, who's the Director of Political Strategy at Way to Win. At Way to Win, and in her work across Texas and elsewhere for many years, she's specialised in political funding for organising, especially with communities of colour, strategic campaigning and electoral work. We are also joined by Stefan Baskerville, the Director of Organising and Movement Building from the New Economics Foundation. Both at NEF, that's what they call it, and Citizens UK before, he was part of teams that not only did a lot of community organising, but raised a lot of money to fund it. Our plan is to talk about how do you raise money? Where are the most strategic places to raise money? What are the problems of certain kinds of money? And what are the most remarkable examples of well-resourced people power that they have seen? Okay, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to a Changemaker panel. Conversations about the tough topics faced by people changing the world. We're supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. And you can sign up to our email list at changemakerspodcast.org. You can find us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast or even on Twitter at Changemakers99. So, Colleen, Stefan, it's so fun to have you here in Sydney, all the way from where you've come from. Mm -hmm. Thank you for being with us. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you for inviting. Awesome. Well, we're talking about a really interesting topic today, which is how do you actually fund all this change making? It's nice to talk about cool ideas, but how do you get the resources to make it happen? And our listeners will delight in the fact that both of you, Colleen and Stefan, from the US and the UK, have actually got quite a lot of experience in raising money and learning when it works and also when it's tricky. And so we're going to share that with everyone today. But let's, I just want to start with everyone sort of introducing yourself and both explaining a little bit about why you have got involved in social change and change making in the ways in which you have and how that has connected to money for you. Do you want to start, Colleen? So I'm Colleen Loper and I am a fourth generation Texan. So it's a large part of my identity, and I'll talk about Texas quite a bit. But I'm also someone that grew up in an Irish Catholic household and a union household. And so I think from the very beginning, there was a lot of both service and guilt that were just infused in my childhood and lent themselves to getting involved in social justice. But really what happened was that like, there's a few different, I think, moments that led me to get into social justice organizing, be it, you know, growing up in a household that was union and so. So tell me one of those early moments yeah. that, that drew him. 
So I, I just remember, like, you know, hearing my mom and dad talk about, like, getting back pay um, and the the local school district owing my mom for doing summer schools teaching. And the union was the one that actually helped get it. And then, you know, my, my dad also, you know, whenever he was in the hospital, the unions were the ones that would organize extra money to come and actually come by and, and, and share it with the family. And so unions were always a big piece of it, and I saw organizing that way. And then I went to college, and I started to pay for it myself. And so whenever they increased tuition in the U.S., I was really angry and honestly a little bit scared too. Um, and so that's why I was like, okay, well, what can I do about this? And that led to protesting, which led to organizing, which led to an internship, which led to a job, and it was kind of like a snowball but one that was incredibly productive and a little bit addictive, too. And that job that I had was on a campaign, um, and that campaign uh, ended up being President Obama's campaign. And through that, I met all of these really wonderful people who just— seeing them be empowered and seeing them figure out how to make local change in their own neighborhood was something that I thought I was going to do for about a year, and instead I just continued, and I'm still doing it. But now— my journey through my career has led me through different places, you know. So I went from working in Nevada and Florida and Texas on various campaigns. I was a political director for um, a statewide organization that recruits, trains, and support pro-choice women called Annie's List. And there, that's when my, that was the first time that I had an intersection with money in politics because I saw how much we had versus how much or like how little we would have really affected the ability of us to engage different communities. You know, do you make the decision to have 12 mail pieces versus having a door-to-door conversation because one is just so much more expensive? And so that was the first time that I had to grapple with it. And then from there, I went to be a campaign manager, a couple of campaigns, and then I was a consultant in D.C. Um, and whenever President Trump became president. I was I had to leave DC. I had to go back home to the south. I know I knew that I needed to be involved in long-term organizing because I knew that, you know, at the end of the day a campaign doesn't leave any infrastructure behind and that's not what I wanted to be a part of. And so I kind of switched from electoral organizing to more movement building and the position that was that that got me back home from DC was with the Texas Future Project, which is an organization that raises money for organizations that are independent political organizations. And then from there, I went to Way to Win, which is where I'm the director of political strategy, and I get to work in 10 states, and we're just trying to upend politics as usual, particularly in the philanthropic space, because so often, not just campaigns have to deal with how much money they have or not, but also the organizations who are Uh, doing the year-round work, and so they're doing some direct services, but then at the end of the day, they have the trust with various community members that are not going to—I mean, honestly, they're going to be overlooked by most of the campaigns because they're low-propensity voters, they're people that don't have means, they have, you know, maybe two or three jobs, and so most campaigns are like, oh, well, they don't have the time, um, and they're not as dependable voters. And so—but these organizations have been organizing them— to go and, you know, demand more resources after a hurricane. They've been working hand-in-hand with these with, with folks to help them move through the immigration systems. Um, and so whenever they say, hey, like, it's time to go vote so that we can elect people who are going to make it a little bit easier for our everyday lives, and are, they're going to—and then, you know, 
they folks listen to the organizations. And then, you know, those or, those those same organizations mobilize people to go and hold the people that they've been that they have now elected accountable so that the policies that they promised on the campaign trail actually become policies for everyday lives. You know, so I, th- I think that it's incredibly important that that type of infrastructure is is there, but it takes a lot of resource and it takes a lot of people power, it's a lot of money. So that's kind of how I have navigated from hearing my mom talk about unions and the importance that they led and like how they were able to like then buy, you know, like my coloring books, like <laughs> um, to then making sure that other organizations have the resources to create that same help for other folks. Awesome. Thank you. Stefan, tell us a little bit about, about your journey. So I grew up in, in South London uh, in a very diverse community called Brixton, which is which the site of a lot of immigration of Caribbean uh, people uh, in the aftermath of the Second World War when British government was founding the National Health Service and needed to staff it with nurses and also rebuild the country after the Second World War. And so there was a huge labor demand. So I grew up in a, in a kind of a very uh, diverse ethnically and racially uh, community. And uh, that was kind of a big part of our identity growing up. I guess an, uh, another part of our family history was that my father's parents were Jewish refugees. And so uh, we grew up with a strong sense of the importance of politics, the value of democracy. My, you know, my grandfather and grandmother arrived in the UK in uh, March and June of 1939 as teenagers. And so although Jewishness was not a big uh, thing in our household growing up, the fact of my grandparents fleeing uh, was... And they also became very political people. They were trade unionists and uh, they had a kind of strong commitment to to politics and to protest and to being engaged. So I guess I grew up in a home that was interested in those uh, kinds of issues um, and encouraged by my parents uh, to engage with, with those kinds of questions. And growing up in South London, I guess I witnessed very significant inequalities of wealth and, and life chances and saw the impact that money and income have on uh, on different people's lives and how much easier it is and how much more freedom you have if you grow up in a home that has a reasonable or a lot of money um, and how much harder life is if you don't. So so I guess that's the kind of context and a, and a bit about my background. I came to organising through, I guess, being interested in making change in the world and wanting to have an impact and discovering it at university through getting involved with a campaign to win a living wage for the people who cleaned the university libraries and uh, other buildings. And through that, uh, connected to uh, Citizens UK and began to work with them in London during my breaks in, be- in, in between terms from university. And I, I guess I began to learn the tools of organising, applied them uh, as a kind of student politician running the student union in Oxford. And then after that, went to London and, and worked full time as an organiser with Citizens UK for seven years, during which time we kind of we did broad based community organising on a whole, a whole range of issues, but focused a lot on the question of the living wage and building a, a living wage campaign that sought to win for low paid workers a, a wage that was based on the standard of living as opposed to a kind of legal statutory uh, minimum floor. And I guess the drive of that work came from meeting with low-paid workers, mostly and people of colour. And so there's a very significant extent to which the question of money intersects with race around income in particular, I think, in 
uh, certainly around low paid work in London, but I imagine that's true elsewhere as well. And, you know, meeting with people who are working uh, two or more jobs on the legal minimum wage, but still not having enough to put food on the table and spend time with their kids. And there's just a very basic injustice about that that needs to be ended. And so as an organisation at Citizens UK, we built a campaign with a whole diverse kind of alliance of institutions to take on initially uh, kind of corporate employers in the financial services sector in London, um, but subsequently universities uh, and then the national government and the retail sector to try and build a, a move, a growing number of employers that would commit to this higher standard. And through, I guess, all of that was premised on uh, being able to staff and resource uh, an organisation that was capable of organising people and building the power and the pressure that you need to get the right decisions made. And that the, we could maybe talk more about the, the, the sources of that money and where it came from, because it came from a mix of places and um, and some of those places, I guess, offer lessons about how you how we should continue to do that in the future. You've both talked about how inequality manifests and that part of that is a lack of money for, you know, the, the, those who, who need justice. And it's not simply that we need to uh, rectify that inequality in the sort of outside world, but we need to be able to bring money into our organisations in order to be able to do it. We need to be able to organise money to rectify that inequality. And it's both interesting too that you've both had experiences with unions who probably were the original people to ask this question about how do you organise money and they and they had a Jews model, right? You know, it's interesting, but but money is more complicated in in this age and and how we organise money is, I think, a little bit more different and there are different strategies. Stefan, why don't you start by talking through some of the different ways in which uh, not-for-profit organisations, progressive organisations, citizens' organisations, what are the different strategies they can use to organise money? So you know, I think I think there are there are several different routes that you that you have, and a, a very significant one in in organising is the question of hard money and raising a dues base. So you know, build, building a a kind of diverse set of regular contributions from a membership base, whether that's individuals or institutions, who have an ownership over the organisation that they're contributing to are able to exercise some accountability for how the money that they contribute is then spent in terms of what the staff do that uh, with their time who are paid using using those funds and so there's a there's a great strength in that because it also gives an organization that has a strong dues base a kind of independence from other interests so there's the old fable or, or tale of the Pied Piper of Hamlin um, which gives us the the phrase he who pays the piper calls the tune and you know, there's a very significant extent to which if you if you have money, you're able to determine what it's used for. And so building a, a kind of hard dues base uh, means that you're accountable to the, the members or the beneficiaries who are contributing. And also, if you're doing work well, um, means that you have a kind of stability over time because you've got a base of people who contribute year on year to something that they believe in and have some ownership over. I think the truth of that is, is that um, it's really important, but it's also really hard. And particularly if you're organising for social justice, you're often organising with people who don't have a lot of money or with institutions who don't have a lot of money. And so that inevitably leaves a gap. 
And then you have to think about how you fill that gap. And can I just step in there? Because you're not suggesting that people shouldn't pay money even if they don't have much. It's just that they don't have enough money to contribute to cover the costs of the whole thing, yeah? Right. Because there's that benevolent attitude that also happens. Oh, the poor, they they can't possibly do it themselves. We'll have to set up a philanthropic organisation for them. That's not the model that you're talking about, yeah? Right. And I think, well, because I think one of the important things about organising for change in the way that I think about it, and I guess have learned to think about it from multiple different uh, sources, is to organise with people and to do things with people, not to them or for them. And if you can, uh, that should include where you get your money from, because that then shapes the kind of work that you go on to to do. So, uh, you know, even if you do succeed in raising a lot of hard money, often, not always, but often, you still have a gap. And that means that you need to turn to sources of soft money in the form of uh, grants. Sometimes people take grants from government. Uh, sometimes they take them from philanthropic foundations. And I guess that's vitally important. And there's a, there is a really, really significant role for philanthropy and for, uh, and for donors uh, in helping to shape uh, kind of social justice campaigns and campaigns uh, and efforts uh, for change. But it also does have challenges and uh, they can include, you know, skewing the priorities of the work towards the interests of the people who give the money as opposed to the interests of the people who uh, should be benefiting from the work. And they can include setting limits to to an organising process. Uh, And it also, you know, fundraising takes up a lot of time. So it's like it's fundamentally important, it's critical, in immense need of philanthropy, but there are also challenges uh, with it. I think there is a kind of really important question of how to take philanthropic foundations and decision makers on a journey, particularly if you want to fund work that is done with people, not to them or for them, and including to focus on the kinds of metrics and the outcomes that they expect from the money that they give. I think there's there's an interesting conversation to be had about how funders measure the success of the work that they're funding, which is really kind of critical to whether or not they they kind of succeed. Mm-hmm. And so, Colleen, you've obviously also had an enormous experience with raising money. I know that you've worked with a, with not only with hard money, but with questions of, of soft money and also with small donations um, as another strategy or crowdfunding as another strategy for organising money for not-for-profits. How have you found those two strategies for resourcing our work to work? That's an interesting question because I think you can go a few different ways. So I'm going to start with crowdfunding because I think it's a little, it's the most similar to dues paying and membership because I think people are giving in small dollar amounts because they see themselves as a part of that movement. They want to support it, but they might not have the resource that somebody who is able to set up a foundation in their name does. So I think that it's a way of, you know, even if there's a geographic disparity, you know, you can give to a candidate, you can give to an organization, and you get to be a part of it now. And it's a, it's a, it's a true way of ownership. And you're saying that, like, I see myself as a part of this and with, these, with this movement. And so I think that small dollar donations is another way that, like, you, that you can scale in a way that you're going to then continue to be accountable to the mission as opposed to being accountable to the funder. And I think that there's a couple of things, at least in the States, that I can speak to. Um, I don't know how it's happening in the rest of the world, but I think that there's more and more people who are starting to view themselves as both. Like, I think that there are more people who typically give their time and are starting to give their treasure, and there are people who are, 
you know, typically donors and they're starting to be asked to go and block walk or to show up to an endorsement forum or something like that, or to show up to City Hall to make, you know, make calls, whatever the action might be. I think that people are starting to see that they don't have to be siloed into being a donor or a doer, and you get to be both. Mm. And I think that there's a lot of power in that because, you know, there's an activist in, in the United States who's recently passed away, Paul Booth, who uh, said that in order to have power, you need money or people. Um, and to have more authority, you, you need both. And so I think that small dollar donations are a really interesting way to have both. Mm. And also it's what I'm hearing from you is that they're a form of, of hard money in the sense that there's accountability, but also there's a pathway to engagement. You know, mm-hmm. an organization puts $20,000 into... Citizens UK or Sydney Alliance or a different kind of organisation, they're not just putting their cash in. It's a it's a symbol of their organisational commitment to, to the cause. And for individuals, uh, crowdfunding or in, when it's done really well mm-hmm. is is like a is like a gateway drug to mm-hmm. to democratic participation. Absolutely. I think the Beto O'Rourke campaign in 2018 did this really well. I think that Elizabeth Warren in the United States is doing this really well right now. And you know. Politics is place-based. Political power is place-based. I do think that with more digital organizing, there are ways for people to be engaged in in a less place-based way now. Well, Beto O'Rourke got lots of his money, most of his money, most lots of his money from outside of Texas in his, got, in like, his race for it, it the was, Senate. It wasn't most of it, but it was, it was quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. it was heaps. Um, and I think that, you know, like now you can text Right. Like you can go to a candidate's website and sign up to text voters in a specific area. But, you know, you could live in Maryland and have texted for Beto O'Rourke in Texas. And then you're talking to Texas voters about like and it makes sense because it's federal. And so the the position he was running for ultimately did have, you know, stake across the nation. But Mm. he would have been representing Texas voters. But, you know, anybody could. I mean any other person living in the United Mm. States could have done that. And so there's an interesting I guess, a disassociation between place and power that you get uh, in this digital age. And I think that small dollar donations is one of those manifestations. Mm-hmm. So, like, everyone's talked really positively about how you can raise the money and, you know, it's all great. But, you know, like, we know that actually not only is money a real stress in organisations, that lots of organisations who are trying to make change really find it hard to raise enough money to be able to operate. But we also know that even the process by which you bring in the money can create challenges and problems for what you do in your organisation. So, Thinking about those choices and how organisations, you know, making decisions about whether they're going to go for government grants or philanthropic funding or hard money or some mix between the, the, the lot of them, what are some of the challenges and dilemmas they might encounter? Like how can money, Stefan, how can money muck us up? Well, I suppose. Well, so in my role now at the New Economics Foundation, I spend uh, quite a lot of time raising money of the soft variety because um, at, at the New Economics Foundation we are mostly funded by by grants. Um, we do we've got a diversity of income uh, sources, but but mostly it's it's grants from foundations. I suppose it muck us up. I might think was a bit a little bit too strong, but but you know it, it does take a lot of time. And so you have to spend a lot of time engaging with the application process and particularly in the relationship that you need to build with decision makers to kind of understand what their priorities are, but also help them to understand in the right way the kind of work that you're trying to do. 
And I think, you know, there's the funders in the UK are, are definitely on a journey, but there are some really good examples uh, of foundations who have are increasingly funding or organizing work through grant giving that either is for core costs because they have a relationship with uh, the organization that they're funding that means they trust the money will be spent in the right way or they are um, attaching metrics to the funding but the metrics that they're that they're attaching are about leadership development uh, or the kind of integrity of an organizing process without necessarily demanding kind of campaign outcomes or in the way that traditional funders might so I'm thinking about Unbound Philanthropy and the Paul Hamlin Foundation and Trust for London and Oak. There, you know, there is a growing number of foundations who I think are increasingly willing to fund that kind of work, which is really important. But it, it does require an investment of significant time and resource in the development of a relationship with them. And when it doesn't go well, if you're not working with a funder who, uh, who is like that, you can find yourself spending an awful lot of time raising money, sometimes not in huge sums, that ties you into delivering outcomes that are actually really quite arduous and sometimes divergent from the work that you discover you actually need to do when you get into it. Um, and then you find yourself in this uh, kind of bind of spending lots of time uh, and energy trying to raise that money and then you try to do the work but you have to report back to the funder about a set of outcomes that you know uh, are no, no longer seem really apply and so where it doesn't go well it can be a really frustrating thing. Okay, I'm going to come back because I'm looking for a story. You can tell a, a good person story. Um, obviously, you want to tell a, a story about someone being terrible because that would be great to put on a podcast. But you can just have a think about a story of where this transformation has occurred, where this relationship has occurred. If you, but I'm going to come back, Colleen. What do you? What are your thoughts? Like when you look at the question of money, what do you see the biggest um, challenges being in terms of for organisations? I mean, I think it's time. I think the amount of time and resource that organizations have to put in in order to get more funding is very arduous. Uh, and there's a lot of decisions about the return on their investment because at the end of the day, their their time is precious because that's the one thing, or it's one of the things that we're always running out of, particularly if you're doing electoral or um, trying to move any sort of policy within like a legislative session you're you're just constantly running out of time. So I, I think that's probably the biggest challenge. Mm. So one of the things that I don't know if it's happening, I, I'm sure it is happening everywhere else, but one thing that's happened here is some intermediary organisations have set up where there's an organisation that builds relationships with philanthropic funders, often individuals, who are keen on a broad topic and then the, they build the trusting relationship with the money, which takes a lot of time. And then that organisation who's much more connected to what's going on on the ground then provides the grants and so forth. Is, is that a way of overcoming some of the sort of time pressure that you talk about? Well, I think you pretty accurately described way to win. Um, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> really, Colleen? <laughs> um, I think that's something that we spend a lot of time developing relationships with folks. And I think our staff has a very deep knowledge of how resources and and funders like to work. And so that's exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to share this Southern strategy and we're trying to talk to folks that are interested in, in investing in different states than what has traditionally been the path to victory, at least in electoral organizing in the United States. And we're talking about, you know, organizing in 
South and Southwest states that haven't been invested in, so Arizona, Texas, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, Virginia, but also really making sure that we're centering people of color um, and other communities that have been the closest to the pain that the policies of our current administration, past administrations, are inflicting. So I think that actually, if I can add to my previous answer of what another challenge is, is that there's a lot of implicit bias in in philanthropic giving. And so, you know, women aren't getting enough money, people of color aren't getting enough money, and the organizations that are led by or servicing those communities at the end of the day, which are the ones that have been underserved by the government and need that extra money, like they're just not getting the, re- the resources at the levels that they need. Stefan, have you thought of um, a useful or interesting story about, about being able to sort of harness or build a relationship with soft money over time where it's been able, you've been able to build a relationship? Because, I mean, the biggest problem that many people face when they're going to, 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 organizations in the philanthropic funders in the first instance is that they have to apply for these really small grants that require them to produce enormous reports about all the things that they've done in the community or the outputs as opposed to all of the work that they've done with the community that is the organizing and so we're not reporting on how we're building power with people and we're not being invited and that's not really part of the measure but actually that's some of the most important work that any any anyone can do with a community is actually is is ensure that lots of people are involved in the change, like that's how we build democracy, right? Can you think of a, a fund or an organisation that has really gone on a journey with, with say, you at Citizens UK or, or at um, the New Economics Foundation where you've shifted someone around that? There are probably a couple of different examples. I think Trust for London are, are a really interesting example in relation to the living wage work uh, that uh, I was involved with at Citizens UK, where their their kind of initial grants uh, in the kind of mid 2000s were to fund a kind of living wage campaign oriented work. Uh, they subsequently made a, a really significant grant over the course of several years. It was a four year uh, grant that helped to um, undergird the campaign, but also lay the basis for uh, a social enterprise, which became the Living Wage Foundation. Uh, and I guess uh, I, I pick on that example because it's an interesting example of a partnership between a community organisation and a funder that leads to uh, a social enterprise being developed, which then itself helps to generate income from the employers who are signing up to the living wage that can be re- recycled back into further living wage campaign and uh, community organising work. So, you know, Tr- Trust for London were a kind of key partner in that whole process and their understanding of organising and support for organising kind of grew over the course of, of that time. Um, I think an example from uh, my time at NEF would be the Tudor Trust, which is a, a grant-giving trust in London, focused mostly on grassroots work, but they they were involved and gave some grants to the New Economics Foundation in the very earliest days of its existence, uh, back in the kind of late 80s and early 90s. Um, So there's a kind of long-standing relationship with the organisation. But, you know, they have been paying attention to what's developing in the world of social change. They can see that there is a movement towards doing things with people, uh, not to them or for them. You know, they have become supportive of uh, a kind of community organising methodology over the course of the last kind of 15 years. That means they're increasingly willing to back uh, community organising efforts and also kind of movement building efforts that actually there's there's a value in in resourcing organizers uh, to spend time developing relationships and building capacity and and power even if you don't know exactly what uh, the the kind of outcome of that work is going to be and in the course of our kind of most current work with them I've been really struck by their willingness to 
embrace the uncertainty of that, right? That actually the, the truth is it's really uncertain. Uh, that means that there's a kind of risk to doing that kind of grant giving because you don't know. But if you kind of believe in the work and in the proposition, if you have a relationship of trust, if there's a track record that you feel you're investing in, then I think those are some of the things that funders feel kind of comforted by to, to get them to take the step mm. and, uh, and to begin to fund that kind of work and take the risk on the uncertainty. Yep, fantastic. So, and you raise this idea of social enterprise, and you know, in in the zeitgeist, if you go to a, like a business school, people are talking about social enterprises as being um, an extra another extraordinary, interesting, creative way to fund, and it you know it sort of fits in sort of halfway between hard and soft money in a way, like especially depending on on how the social enterprise is established. But there's lots of other ways that there can be interesting uses and ways to sort of claim money. You had a few examples, Colleen, from the, from the US about sort of creative strategies that some interesting organizations are doing. Do you want to run through them? Yeah, I'll just kind of like bullet points. So there's Lucha in Arizona, which is Living United for Change in Arizona. They're this fantastic organization that service people of color, immigrants, particularly in, in Phoenix and other cities in, in Arizona. But some of the things that I've heard, their leaders who are just brilliant, I've, I've heard them talk about a couple of things from raising money so that they can actually purchase their own building so that they're not going to have to pay rent anymore, but then they'll actually be making investments in themselves and, and have property in case there's another recession or, you know, something like that. So that they actually have capital that's their own. So they've talked about that. They've talked about that, you know, in, in the next few years, Arizona's marijuana laws are going to be changing and and it would be really interesting for them as an organization to own one of the medical marijuana licenses, or I'm sorry, uh, recreational marijuana licenses, and then reinvest that into their C4. I think that's just incredibly brilliant. There's another organization called the Statewide Alignment Group in, in Florida, and they have created an LLC so that they can vend to themselves. It's called Hard Knocks, and they are their own canvassing program. So whenever they need to really scale out uh, for electoral organizing, they can purchase that service as opposed to going to a national organization that is like another national organization that could do it for them, but they're really investing in themselves and people yeah, and wow. relationships for the future. So, but it's not all sweet and pie. Like we're meant to be talking about the challenges here and we know that there are some more challenges that come up with money, whether it's soft or hard. I want to ask a couple of questions around this. So what is the dilemma of, you know, how many funders you have? Like what are the problems if you have too few funders for for your organising work? How does that play out? It's risky because you're, you know, you're reliant on a small number of, of people. And then if disaster strikes for whatever reason, that could be a strategic review about funder priorities that decides, you know, they're, they're shifting what they're interested in funding. It could be that a key relationship um, with somebody changes because they move on. And so it might be good that you built a relationship with them for a very long time. But if they leave the funder and are replaced by someone who you don't have a relationship with, then, um, you know, you, it, it opens you up to, to risk. So I, so I guess that I, I think the main uh, problem with that is the risk of relying on a small number of sources means that you are, vun you are vulnerable should those uh, should circumstances change. But of course, you mitigate that by building up a large number of relationships. Well, then you kind of need a fundraising department with somebody whose job it is to keep track of all those relationships, make sure that you're engaging with all of those people, engaging with them, you know, uh, at, appro at an appropriate kind of frequency. And, uh, you know, 
obviously multiplying the number of sources of funding means you have you're multiplying up the number of grants that you have to report on and we're back to the kind of reporting question so i think you know there there's there's pros and cons but i definitely think it's true that the more diverse your funding sources and uh, then probably the safer you are because you're spreading your bets. Yeah, yeah. Colin, can you think of other... What are what are some of the things that people should look out for around strategies around money? The United States has very complex laws, so one of the things that I'm always thinking of is just making sure I'm following the law. Um, so that's the first thing. And then I think making sure that that you're putting yourself in situations where you can be transparent with with your goals so that you don't actually end up mission creeping um, in order to follow a grant or, you know, get a, some sort of resource. And I think that another, I guess, another thing to, like, look out for would just be, you know, knowing when to trust funders because they do have a different perspective and they do have the luxury of seeing a lot of different projects that are creating best practices and being able to differentiate whenever that's something that is something that it should be applied to you versus something that, you know, at the, at the end of the day, a funder also isn't an all-knowing God. And so not everything that we say needs to be followed to a T. So I think, you know, just kind of parsing through like really helpful information and knowing like how to pull that into your program versus saying, oh, that's not quite a fit for us, but thank you for thinking of So what of about us. government funding, right? So some organisations rely very, very heavily on government funding. Some other organisations, you know, I, and I'm thinking of groups, um, Citizens UK has said this, some organisations like Sydney Alliance or some of the industrial areas foundations in the US say you should never get government funding or you should, you know, because you can't bite the hand that feeds you and we want to bite the hand of government. What are some of the limits of government funding, Stefan? That is definitely one of them, that if one of your organisational purposes, which is not the purpose of all organisations, so we should, you know, that if one of your organisational purposes is to is to challenge uh, political power um, and to hold politicians and, and government decision makers to account for the decisions they make and the way they spend public money then it can be very complicated to take public money in order to fund that work because, you know, the, what's the likelihood that they're going to continue to uh, to fund you? Or, I mean, the reality is probably you're not going to end up doing the kind of work you set out to do because the nature of the relationship uh, with people that are giving you the money is going to end up shaping the work that you do and tilt you away from holding them to account on uh, some things and, you know, towards delivering other kinds of work. So I think there are, you know... That's one of the central challenges if that's one of your if that's one of your purposes, which is not to talk down the value of government uh, fun funding because it's it's incredibly important that the state funds uh, important services, and you know there are all kinds of ways in which, depending on which country you're in, government should be improving and expanding uh, the money that it spends on addressing social injustice. But if your objective is to hold them to account and to challenge them, then then taking their money does does present uh, some challenges. It's tricky. It's very tricky. We're just going to reflect now, right? So we've talked about a lot of the mechanics, we've talked about the challenges and the, and the the need for raising money if we're, we're in this social change, change maker game. But what are the what are the most important lessons? You've both been doing this stuff for a long time. Like if we've got people who are listening, many of whom are 
possibly interested in setting up an organization or they're in an organization and they want to make it bigger and more powerful. What's, you know, the most important lesson from your work in this space that you want to pass on to them? At the end of the day, anything that we're doing, be it organizing, holding power accountable or raising money, um, it's all about relationships. And so I think having as many of them as possible, keeping them up to date, telling them and treating them like a thought partner as appropriate as possible is really important because sometimes you might just unlock a passion and you didn't know that because the person that you're talking to who might be making a recommendation or actually writing the check themselves is a full person as well. And you you might find that they're a little bit more into being a co-conspirator exactly. than you would have it's a, Being before. a good organizer means being good at organizing money as well. Mm. Awesome. Thank you, Colleen. Stefan? Yeah, I wholeheartedly concur with uh, with that because I think the you know, relationships and trust are, are key and the, and the foundation and the bedrock of, of good organizing of money. I guess two other things that I would add to that. The first is that Money's really hard to talk about. I don't think it's a uniquely British thing, but but uh, good. It's good to have that confirmed. Mm-hmm. But but you know, culturally, it's often really sensitive to bring up the topic of money, and people are not often used to asking for money, even in small sums. Leave alone asking for very significant sums of money. So and and really addressing the root of that is about valuing yourself and both believing in yourself and your colleagues and the people that you work with, but also, you know, believing in the value of the work that you do and being willing to look someone in the eye and say, you know, I am deserving of the money that you've got because you should be giving it to us so we can achieve these things. And so at, at a kind of really basic level, working on your ability to do that authentically and without blinking I think is is really important. And then I guess the second thing uh, that I would add is about persistence and learning, which is you've, you also fail a lot if you're trying to raise money. And if you're asking people for money, sometimes they say no. And that's okay. So tr- treating rejection not as a kind of judgment on you, but as an opportunity to learn and being persistent in the face of rejection I think is also a kind of really critical thing in terms of learning to raise money because eventually you do succeed and then you begin to learn from success as well as from failure. But the knockbacks are are important as well as the as well as the approvals. Yep, change making is about this stuff as well. It's like we can't externalize the money question because it feels icky. It's actually a part of the practice. Thank you both so much for coming in here and hopefully educating our listeners more about how this money stuff can work for them. Thank you. Thank you. Changemaker Chats are hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. Changemakers is produced by Ben Keating. Our audio producer is Jules Wookerer. Our sponsoring organisation is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. We are also supported by the Halloran Trust based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories. 
Changemakers has a new weekly online training about community organising designed for these pandemic times. It focuses on relationships, building connection and the art of changemaking. Check it out on our website, www.changemakerspodcast.org under the training tab. Mark Pesci, and I'm exploring the future of tech with my podcast, The Next Billion Seconds. Listen for free at podcast1australia.com.au, search The Next Billion Seconds podcast, or download the new Podcast One Australia app. Podcast One.